Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. If you would like to participate in online worship, sermons, and children's programs, then check out the Renaissance Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, let's get started. Well, hello, Renaissance. It's so great to be with you again. My name is Jeff. If we haven't met, I'm one of the leaders here at the church. And I'm standing on the platform in our new sanctuary space that we were only able to use two weeks before the whole COVID pandemic hit and we had to shelter in place and stay home. I thought it'd be best to come back out here and preach this week because next week we're going to be also back in this main room when we come back to uh, worship together in person. So I'm hoping those of you who feel comfortable enough um, and, and want to return back to the church building with us that you guys will join us uh, next week. The, being here reminds me of a story when I was a young boy. I was maybe 11 or 12 years old. And one Christmas, I got the most awesome BMX bike. And it was the BMX bike that I wanted. But of course, I grew up in central Illinois. I'm a Decatur resident my whole life. Um, that particular Christmas, it had snowed and ice the night before. So I got this wonderful Christmas gift that I could not even use that first week, right? I couldn't even ride it on that day. So I was very frustrated. And it reminds me of that here. We've built this brand new space, made all kinds of room for a bunch of people, and we haven't really been able to use it yet. So that's a long way for me to say I'm just really excited Uh, that we're going to be able to get back together and we're going to be able to see each other's faces and and hang out again. I read a story this week on churchleader.com and it, it was a story of a pastor in Columbus, Mississippi, who was forced to leave his church just a couple of weeks ago. Scott Volland and his wife, Deborah, had been pastoring this church for about three and a half years and were suddenly asked to leave. But why? Scott had not stolen anything from the church treasury. He hadn't been preaching false doctrine or heresy, and he hadn't had a moral failure, which seems to be so common with church leaders these days. No, Scott was fired for this. He was participating in peaceful protests, prayer walks, and posting on social media regarding the social injustice of racism. The people in his church were saying things like this. You don't represent us as a church and we want you to be silent about your personal beliefs and we don't think you should be acting that way. And they fired him. He he later commented that he wasn't upset with his church for their actions. And he just simply said, this was just a time where our visions and ideologies were diametrically opposed. And it was just best for us to part ways. Scott had mentioned in this article that he's going to start a new church. He's going to go plant another ministry and he's going to do so in the same town that he was already in the same town that the other church exists in that just fired him. And when he said that one supporter came up to him and said this, Scott, God has shown you that you were working at a country club and not a house of God. What I think was happening there is that person was intimating that country clubs are places that people join, that they pay monthly dues to belong to. They want to associate with other people like themselves, people with the same social status, same political ideology, possibly same social ideology, maybe with the same educational experience, etc. And what this person was saying, that's not a picture of what the church really is. And I have to agree 
The members of the church can, and hear me, and should be diverse. That we should look different from one another. We should look different from one another in the color of our skin, in the political affiliation or ideologies that we have. We should be different in all of our educational experiences. We should have people in the church who have not graduated from high school and PhD candidates. We should all be able to coexist together. And there will be a unifying thread in all of that. And that is Jesus Christ, our Lord. This person was helping Scott, Pastor Scott, see that he wasn't really serving a people of God. He was serving a country club type mentality, a country club type church. Know this, I desire deeply unity in the church. Unity in faith. I'm not looking for homogeny. I have spoken about this many times before, but we have to be united in faith. We don't need unity in political ideology or social ideology. No, for the church to operate fully in power and to make an impact in the world around us, we must be united in Christ Jesus. Here's a question that I had uh, wrestled with early this week after reading this article. I, I was in our break room here in the office and I was fixing something to drink, I think, and as I'm waiting for the microwave to warm up my water for tea, this question popped in my mind. Jeff, what role does God play in your life? Or Jeff, what role does the church play in your life? Maybe you've heard someone ask you a question similar. What what does Jesus mean to you? And and as I considered that question and began to, to answer it, I began to realize if I place God into a particular role for my life, then it's somehow placing him in a position that serves me. That if I place the church and or Jesus Christ into a position where I, where I can answer the question, well, I want the church to be this for me, or I want God to do this for me. We are making those things serve us, which then makes us the master in the two relationships. We, in a sense, become the puppeteer and Jesus or God becomes the marionette. And that is not how our relationship with God is supposed to work. I want you to hear me when I say this. God's purpose is not to serve you. God's purpose is not to serve me. The, the purpose of the church is not to, to like serve us and to meet all of our needs. And if we, if we think that is, we've become consumers in that. We become the masters, as I said, in the relationship. We somehow become the ones that we think are worthy of the worship and God is something lesser than. And if we get, if we get worship wrong, if we mistake this, we're going to have huge ramifications in our lives and the work of the church. A new book that I'm reading by Zach Neese, uh, it's entitled How to Worship a King, speaks about this issue of misunderstanding worship and or the relationship that God has with his people. Speaking to church leaders, he says this, if leaders don't fully understand worship, how can they expect to teach people about it? And if they do not teach people about worship, how can they expect people to participate in it? And if people don't engage in correct worship, How can we expect to invite God's presence into our churches? And if we don't invite 
God's presence into our churches, how can we expect power to operate in people's lives? And if his power is not operating in people's lives, how can we expect to have anything other than a lifeless church? And here's the big question. And if a church is lifeless, how can it change the world? I think the world needs some changing. I don't think any of us, after having watched the national newscast for the day, would, would think that the world doesn't need changed in some way. I don't think we can look across the street, even into our neighbor's house, or to, to look at the people we work with and think to ourselves, no, the world's fine. No, no change needs to take place. No, we all believe that the world needs to change. And I believe, and I'm one of the idealistic people here, is I believe that the church should play a prominent role in that change. But to do that, we need to peer into the church. We need to peer into the church with a critical eye and to consider some things that may be wrong. And we need to have um, the willingness and the desire to see some things in the church that would, that would cause us to function without God's presence and his power, that would cause us to function as a church that's more like a country club than the living church of God, the, the bride of Christ, the salt and light of the earth that God intends to use to shape his kingdom here on the earth. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, had some critical words for his church. He speaks to seven different churches in the beginning few chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, I want you to know this. Um, as Jesus peers in his critical eye to the church, um, these seven churches are not the only churches that existed in the world at that time. Of course not. There are many others. I think what's happening, I think there's, a, um, there's some usage of the number seven that might imply something, and I'm not going to get into all of that. But just know this. I think Jesus intentionally chose seven churches as examples of problems that the churches in his time, and I would even argue in our time, may experience or are experiencing. And one of the churches that he speaks to is the church at Ephesus. And I want to read out of Revelation chapter 2, um, verses 2 through 4. And these are the words of Jesus speaking to the Christians, the believers in the church in a city called Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. And I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Here is Jesus looking at the church with a critical eye, and he has to say something to them, but he opens with um, encouragement first. I much like this model of Jesus in leadership because I'm the person who first wants to talk about the good things before we get into the bad things. And Jesus does have a negative thing or a bad thing to say about this church. But in verse four, he says, but I do have this thing against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, side note here, if you were to have the opportunity to critique your church. And I guess we all do. I, I used to jokingly say, I think I have the gift of criticism from the Holy Spirit. But if we were to stand back and critique the church, our church, don't you think we could come up with a much larger list than Jesus came up with here? 
I think there's something fascinating here. I think Jesus understands um, how uh, human nature responds to criticism. If you've ever been a person who's trying to correct something, maybe it's how you lift weights or how you run or your golf swing or whatever, pick your thing and you ask people to give you some criticisms. It's so challenging when you have five or six or seven or eight or 10 people telling you what's wrong with the thing that you're doing. It's so much easier if one person just brings one corrective action your way. And I think Jesus is understanding human nature and is explaining that to us. But I think there's also something else at work here too. I think it's more than just good teaching. I think Jesus understands that, but I think there's something else at work. I think Jesus only picks a few things, maybe because he knows how hard it is to change when the list is large, but also maybe as Bob Duffenbaugh has stated in his study on the book of Revelation, where he says this, the reason why many faults and many strengths are not mentioned is that there are not really all that many things which are crucial in the life of the church. The important thing is for the church to concentrate on the few things which are really priorities and to quit agonizing about the others. Now, what if that were true? What if that is true? What if what Jesus is saying, um, of all the things that the church could be having issues with and all the criticisms I could bring, I want to focus on the one that's a priority. And he says, the thing that I have against you is that you have lost the love you had at first. Either way, something has happened at the church of Ephesus that Jesus didn't approve. So let's back up for a moment and talk a little bit about the history of the church of Ephesus. We know that Paul the apostle had gone through Ephesus on one of his missionary journeys, and we read about this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 19, we see Paul make his way to Ephesus. Ephesus at that time was one of the largest, if not the largest, Roman city um, in its region of their territory, of, what, of their kingdom, basically. Uh, a city of about 250,000 people. It's a seaport city. Um, inside of the city was one of the great uh, wonders of the ancient world. What is that saying? The seven great wonders of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Inside the city of Ephesus was the temple to Artemis. It was beautiful and glorious, historians tell us. Is a, a religious city, a pagan city. And in the middle of that, Jesus brings the gospel through the apostle Paul and establishes a church there. And in Acts chapter 19, we see what Jesus, uh, or rather we see what Paul experienced. He, he gets into Ephesus. He, he meets a few people that have heard about Jesus. They're followers of Jesus, probably learned through another itinerant preacher named Apollos who's come through. We don't know for sure, but they're already Christians, but they're not really operating in the fullness uh, of God's power because they had not received the Holy Spirit. So, so Paul asks them if they'd received the Holy Spirit. They, they imply they had not. So he prays for them. He lays hands on them. And it says that they received the Holy Spirit. And then a church is born there. Paul begins to teach in the synagogues for about three months. And after that, when their hardness of heart would refuse to, to listen to him anymore, he moved to another place, uh, the Hall of Tyrannus, where he began to preach for two plus years. Paul established a church and it was growing. And while he is there, there's extraordinary, miraculous things taking place by the hands of Paul. Paul is healing one, uh, multitudes of people. And some of the people in the city begin to see this and some of these uh, other people in the city are uh, uh, a Jewish exorcists, which just means this, that they're, they're, they 
There are people who go around, they try to exercise evil spirits or demons out of people, but they're not Christians. And they saw all of the works that Paul was doing in Jesus' name. And so they try to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And in Acts 19, we see the story that one of these priests went to or one of these people went to a person who had an evil spirit and he says these words. He says, uh, by the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And the, the demon or the evil spirit responds. He's like, well, Jesus I've heard of and I know who Paul is, but who are you? And a fight ensues. The demon filled person and this exorcist start to fight and True story, um, it says here in the Bible that the, the guy got beat up so bad that he, he ran away naked. Just so you know, if you ever get in a fight and at any point you lose your clothes, you lost that fight. I'm just saying, you lost that fight if you get beat so bad you're naked at the end of it. Anyways, moving forward, all of these things are taking place. And when people saw the power of God and the church, um, a lot of their past religious, magical, pagan backgrounds, um, they wanted to leave behind. It says that they actually took all of their magic books and they burned them. And the total of all those books being burned burned, um, was about 50,000 pieces of silver. All that to say, the church was growing in power and it was changing the city around them. Ephesus was known for its idol making. People made these little totems that people would worship. And, and the, the idol makers were losing business because people were no longer serving and worshiping those idols any longer. They're now serving and worshiping Jesus. And it caused a riot to ensue. So because of the size and the dedication of the church at Ephesus, it became a threat to the, uh, the idol making industry in Ephesus. And our dedication to Jesus should be a threat to all things, not to the kingdom of God as well. And it will make many people uncomfortable. Hear me, it's going to make people in the world uncomfortable. And, and even more so, it's going to make people inside of the church uncomfortable. We are called to follow the way of God. It causes people who are in error who are misinformed about things, it will bristle against them and it will, it will cause them to feel different. It will cause them to feel maybe even frustrated. Many people will fight within the church. But in the end, ultimately, we ask God all the time when we pray that God would expose our sinfulness or God would expose our idolatry. God would expose the areas of our lives where we are not fully surrendered to him and fully um, following his lordship in our lives. And when we when God graciously shows us those things, like he was showing some of the people there in Ephesus and like he's probably showing many of us even now during this time. We need to be thankful we need to bless God and ask him to continue to show us more things. But at some point, back to the story of the church at Ephesus and the writings of or the words of Jesus in Revelation 2, at some point, something broke in the church. At some point, something happened and Jesus held it against them. He says, this one thing I have against you, you have left the love you had at first. Now, first, let's, let's take this um, Let's take this verse apart for a minute. The word first um, indicates that they had something that they have now abandoned. So, right, there was something they had and they've walked away from it. And it implies that there was something that they had first in time or something early on in their Christian walk or something early on in their Christian faith. And so the church in Ephesus had abandoned it. 
And what he's saying is they've abandoned this first love. What's this first love? Now, I've heard many people teach on this. They question whether this first love was the love for God or the love for other people. So what is this first love that that Jesus is talking about? Is it love for God or is it love for one another? I'm of the persuasion that I think Jesus is critiquing their, their losing love for one another, their inability to to coexist together in the church together in a loving fashion. And I say so because when Paul writes a letter to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter four, verse uh, chapter four, verses 15 and 16, he says this, rather than speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body, body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And Paul is just stating here that the, the, the head of the body is Christ Jesus. It's the thing that holds us all together. And the body, as you know, is made up of many parts. Paul talks at, at length about this in 1 Corinthians. But it's just so that we understand there's hands and feet and eyes and ears and all, all of these things, all of them unique and different. And yet they're all, all held together by Jesus Christ, the head. And they're all used to build one another up in love. Paul admonishes the church early on in their existence that they, that they should build each other up in love. Uh, Ephesians chapter five, same letter, a little bit longer. Therefore, he says, verse one, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul, the apostle speaking to the church that he helped establish and build and train and grow in Ephesus. He says, you guys need to walk in love just as Christ loved us. You should love one another. Paul, uh, elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, or his letter to the church in Ephesus, praised the church because, because of their love for one another. Uh, chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all of the saints. Because of that, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He had heard how they were such a loving community of Jesus followers. But something broke. Something happened in the church. Jesus understands the need for brotherly love as well. In John's gospel, chapter 13, Jesus says these words, a new commandment uh, I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, he says, you are to love one another. And then he says something unique. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. All people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if we could just poke at that for just a moment, there's this, this understanding that not only is it a command of Jesus, that right, a new commandment he's given to us to love one another, but he's also saying that when you do so, it will actually be a testimony to who I am and to what I've done. When you do this, then the world or everyone out there will know that you belong to me. Everyone else will, will see a witness of who I am in that, which I think is what Jesus is really getting at in Revelation. He says, this, this one thing I have against you, verse four, is that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And then he goes into the next verse, verse five. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. 
is I want, to rem- I want you to remember, this is so crucial for all of us as believers in Christ. When we find ourselves in error or if we've been misinformed on what it means to be a Christian or if we think we can act a certain way because other people act that way and God is specifically saying to you, stop doing that. As we remember what he's called us to and repent and return back to where God is. Because if not, as Jesus continues, he says, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What? (laughs) Okay, the book of Revelation is filled with so much imagery and so many things are difficult to understand, but this is not one of them. When he's talking about the lampstand of Ephesus, he talks about lampstands for all the churches. What he's saying is it is the witness of Jesus Christ. It is the, it is the light that is, that is lit for the world to see. In the Gospels, we, we, talk, we, we learn of a person who lights a, a lamp and does not put it under a, a basket, but actually sets it up high for all to see. The church has a role to play. It is to cast the light of Christ into the world and to affect change into the world. And he says, if you do not act in a brotherly way, then I will remove your lampstand. He says, I will remove your witness. I've never, ever been to Columbus, Mississippi. I can tell you this right now. I have no desire to go to the church that fired that pastor. I have no desire to visit that church because if they can't operate in a compassionate Christian brotherly love to disagree on some of the things that I oftentimes like to call open-handed things, right? These are open-fisted things. These aren't, everyone doesn't have to agree on this. We have to agree on these things, that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, died on a cross, was raised on the third day, ascended back to the Father in heaven, has given us the Holy Spirit as a seal of our inheritance. If these are the things we have to be united on, all of this other stuff, whether you post the right things on social media, whether you participate in the right protests, whether you go to the right civic meetings, all of those things are things we're, we're supposed to be able to disagree on if we can operate in brotherly love. And if we don't do that, if we can't learn that here at the church, then I assure you, just as Jesus has said, I will pull your lampstand from Ephesus, he, he will pull the lampstand from this church here in Decatur as well. H- hear me when I say this. We, we must remember our allegiance We must remember who we are bound to. We are bound to Christ. Oftentimes the writers in the Bible would call themselves a bond servant to Jesus. Paul used that language continually. He has been bound to Christ first and foremost, primarily to Christ first. I want you to, I want you to feel the same way here at, Renaissance, that we must be people who are bound to Christ first. We are not bound to any political party. We're not. We can't be. There's one thing we're, we're, we're tied to forever, and that is Jesus Christ. But the, the political party that we're a part of, and be a part of a political party, I don't care, but you're not bound to that thing. If your political party is acting a fool, vote differently. <laughs> Change. You're not bound to that party. You're not 
We're not bound here at the church to any ecclesiastical structure or church structure or hierarchy. We're not bound to those things. We're not bound to any social ideology on the earth. We're not bound to these. If and when these things around us that we choose to participate in, which are good things, when they no longer serve the kingdom of God, we have the right and the mandate to move on. We cannot walk away from Christ. We never move on from Christ. We never move on from his teachings. That church in Columbus, Mississippi, again, generalities here, of which I know no person there. I've only read this short article on the internet. But they have moved on from the teachings of Christ. When he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you are to love one another, and the whole world would know that you belong to me by your love for one another, they have walked away from him. So where do we go from here? I think we have to hear the words of Jesus first. I think we have to allow him to come and speak to us um, through scripture, uh, through the promptings of his spirit, and, and if we find ourselves uh, acting in a way that's uncharitable and unloving to another person in the church, then we need to know that we're not operating in the will of Christ for us. And we, we cannot move forward from this position until we are fully, um, until we fully understand and realize this theology for us. We have to understand that for our church to have any effective witness in the earth, to affect any change in the earth, we must first operate from this place. If we can't do it well here, we'll, we'll never be able to do it well out there. I'm, I guess I would say this. As a pastor of a church, I've been pastoring now, here for, for 10 years, um, this is changing how I'm seeing how ministry is going to move forward from this church. Th- this is changing. I-, I feel my role now is going to be one of, of, of lovingly correcting those who have found themselves in error. Maybe they've just been misinformed. Maybe they think that it's okay to do that, or maybe they're just willfully disobedient. But I can, I can tell you this, that we myself and the other leaders in this church, um, as God will lead us, we, we have to move to correct those things when they're wrong. We cannot stay silent and let these things perpetuate and, and begin to fill the church because it will strip the witness and the power from this church. I like fun church. I like cool church. I like all the things that we're doing. But we have to be a a church that operates in the power of Christ so that we can make real change in the world. And that's going to come from an understanding of this. It's going to begin with how we treat one another. It's going to, it's going to, be birthed out of this reality that we're going to be a very diverse church with unity in our allegiance to 
and faithfulness to Jesus Christ, our Lord, and his teachings. If we don't succeed in this, then we will become irrelevant. Will you pray with me? I want to pray that God would change our hearts, that he would open our eyes to see this reality, that many of us struggle with this. And we'll repent as Jesus instructed the Ephesian church, and he'll fix us. He'll correct us, and he'll use us in greater ways than we could possibly imagine. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for our time together. God, it is my desire that that love would be expressed in my words today, that no one would think that I'm personally attacking them. But I also want us to be awakened to this reality that we might be losing our witness because of our inability to love one another. So God, just use your Holy Spirit to change us. God, use the scriptures to work like a tool that comes in and cuts out all of the wrong things in our lives and helps us to see the right things. And again, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to live differently. God, help us to remember that there are so many things that will come and go in our lives, but Jesus Christ and our um, allegiance to him will never go. He is always going to be there. He is the the static thing in our lives. The one thing that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always going to be who he is. And so God, give us the strength to attach ourselves to him. God, we thank you for everything you do. We love you. We pray for our church. We pray for our city. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Renaissance Podcast. I hope that God has spoken to you through this message and that you're encouraged to continue pursuing Him. If you would like to get connected with what's going on here at Renaissance, then find us on social media or visit us online at rendicator.org. Remember to check out the Renaissance Church at Home page for online worship, sermons, and children's programs that are being offered during the COVID-19 outbreak.